Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week eight eight slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to The Stages Podcast. Dr Grace Barnes started her directing career as an assistant director at the Sydney Theatre Company on the musical Into the Woods. Her roles since have included staff director at Opera Australia and an associate or resident director on Warhorse, West Side Story, Guys and Dolls, Sunset Boulevard, My Fair Lady and Fiddler on the Roof. Originally from Scotland, she ran her own theatre company, Skeckler's Theatre Company, for five years, and her work as a playwright has been produced throughout Scotland, including at The Sits in Glasgow, The Royal Lyceum and The Traverse in Edinburgh, and at Pitlochry Festival Theatre. Earlier this year, Grace's creative biography of the first woman to swim for Australia in an Olympic Games, In Search of Mina Wiley, was published. Dr Barnes' book on the place of women within musical theatre, Her Turn on Stage, was published in 2015. And in 2022, her book National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella, was published by Matthew and Drama. It is this second text that we will elaborate on in this episode. How did the British musical evolve and where is it going? Dr Grace Barnes, welcome back to the Stages podcast. Thank you, Petey. Lovely to be here. Well, you know, you, you joined the podcast in that, that the first series of, of, of five conversations that I released, and that was 2018, so it's a lot of water under the bridge. A lot of water. It's pre Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, absolutely. And um, you, uh, of course, had achieved your PhD then and and written a wonderful book called Her Turn on Stage, The Role of Women in Musical Theatre, which uh, has proved a, a wonderful academic resource to uh, all sorts of um, students of the musical theatre. Well, interestingly, when it came out, which I think was 2016, maybe it was 15, yep. um, it didn't, nobody bought it and I didn't expect anybody to buy it. But since Me Too, uh, there was a big spike. And I, during, funny, during lockdown, I did a couple of talks to classes that were online uh, in liberal arts colleges in America who had found the book and were studying it. So I think feminism in the musical has become, maybe it's a, an academic module, I think, I hope. You, you were writing in the book, uh, your thesis was about the lack of, of women who've had an input in the construction of the musical theatre form. In that book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Considering that the audience is largely female. Yeah, and my point is, as we were saying earlier, it hasn't changed. And people say, oh, but so much changed after Me Too. Not in musical theatre, it didn't. If you go to a musical now, 
uh, you'll still see, all, certainly in the UK, all male creative teams, which no one questions. Where, whereas, and I, I mean, I was saying that in that book almost 10 years ago, you question it if it's a play. That wouldn't happen if it's a play. But it seems to be it's okay to do that for musical theatre. And yet, as you say, 78% of the ticket buyers are women. So women are being sold something that is constructed from a male point of view, with a male, a masculine framework around it, which is really odd. And it's odd that we buy into it, where we would challenge it anywhere else. But it's not challenged in musical theatre. And I, that's partly what that book was, was, was saying, why do we not challenge this in musicals where we would challenge it anywhere else? Mm. And I still don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because musical theatre is still controlled by men, and that's global, not just... Australia, not just the UK. It's global. Yeah. Our great female story, which you explored in, in your next book, uh, was the life of Mina Wiley. Mm. Who's famous the Australian. Olympic famous Australian. Australian. Um, she was technically the first uh, female Australian Olympian because her heat was before Fanny Jurek's. So she would say that she was the first because she swam before Fanny Jurek did. Fanny Jurek won gold. This was 1912. And Mina won silver. But Mina Wiley who is the daughter of Wiley's Baths and Coogee. He, that was Henry Wiley built those baths in 1907. Um, she sustained a career for much longer than Fanny Jurek did. I mean, she was still winning 20 years later. And I think, I think she is one of the greatest swimmers Australia ever produced, and now she's now almost forgotten. I always said Wiley's Baths was named after her, but it was no, her father. Her father, it, father right? built it in 1907 because there was this bizarre... Well, it wasn't bizarre, but there was a rule that said that, that segregated the sexes in swimming. Um, but Henry Riley, who was minus five, was her coach. And she was, in 1906, was won her first Australian championships. But he couldn't watch her compete. And he couldn't, he technically couldn't train her. He, could, he was a manager of Bronte Bath, so he bended rules a bit that he was poolside while she was swimming. But men couldn't be poolside if women were swimming. So there was this bizarre situation where he was coaching the world, the, the Australian champion, but he couldn't actually watch her swim in her races. So he built this pool in Coogee. He got, uh, he leased land and he literally blasted the pool out of the rock and then at the bottom of the cliffs. And it was a 40 metre pool, which was unusual. That was, they were usually around about 30, so that he, she had somewhere to train and he could go and watch her. Wow. I know. Yeah. So it was named after him. But now I think. Now I think it's sort of, I think she's reclaimed that space and there's a statue of her as you go in. So I do think it's now more minus pool than it is Henry's. Do you think there's a, a might be a, a musical in the, in the life story of Minor <laughs> no, Wiley? No, but I think there'd be a film and if any good film producer is out there, <laughs> I think this is a great film. Minor Wiley is the best story because she was, I mean, I know you know all this, you've listened, but she was, re, she was rediscovered in 1975 and she became this huge celebrity when she was in her 80s. They sort of realised that Australia's first Olympic swimmer was still alive and living in Coogee. And they discovered this in the International Year of Women. So she had this wonderful comeback when she was 83, I think it was, and was inaugurated into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. So it's a beautiful story. Absolutely. Mm. I only ask because, you know, a a lot of our Australian attempts at the musical theatre form have celebrated significant... Australians, I'm talking mm-hmm. about Paul Keating, Ned Kelly, mm-hmm. Shane Warne. Yeah. So, um, 
it's something that 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 practitioners uh, or the or the creators of musical can sometimes associate to a national identity and and hmm. who we are as as a culture. And maybe I'm just thinking musicals tend to come from other sources. I mean, a lot of people now, and we've bitched about it, talk about, oh, it's all taken from film. But musicals have always come from somewhere. They, they yeah. tended um, to be plays or books. Oklahoma was a green grow the lilacs. Green, exactly. Um, they, Pig, so My Fair Lady was Pygmalion. Was Pygmalion. So they've just moved to film. Yeah. It's not new that we're looking to other sources. There was always another source. And in that other source, a lot of those sources were historical figures. I mean, I'm trying to think of the American ones. I mean, Dolly. Dolly Levi. Yeah. Who came out of Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker. And... No, I meant, sorry, I didn't mean Dolly, I meant Gypsy. Gypsy, all right. Gypsy. Uh, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee. Rose Lee. And yeah. what's the, who's the, the one that, I can't remember. Um, they sing the little tin box. Uh, uh, Fiorello. Fiorello. Yeah. I was going to say Tony Sheldon would know. <laughs> <laughs> the oracle. He yes. Knows, he knows everything. Fiorello. So, um, and I, they're still doing it today with Hamilton. Completely. Yeah. So I think that historical sources is he, not an unusual route to go down for for a musical yeah. I guess because the story already exists Evita yeah. and we want to hear about that person well that's a lovely segue into what I really wanted to talk about today which was your latest book uh, which is National Identity and the British Musical from Blood Brothers to Cinderella uh, the, the, obviously the musical theatre is an American form it has its roots in um, Jewish immigrants who arrived at Ellis Island um, African rhythms um, even operetta um, what, what have been the roots of the English musical has it been an attempt just to, to, to copy that form from America or has it evolved itself well first of all it's British <laughs> you always correct me on that. I always I correct know. you, but yeah, everybody yeah, does it. Yeah. And I talk about it in the book, is how England is conflated with Britain, whereas it's not the same thing at all. But the British musical tends to be the English musical because they are produced in London. Um, historically, the British musical was very, very influenced by operetta in a way that the Broadway musical was less so. I think Broadway musical was more influenced by jazz, exactly what you were talking about, immigrant immigrants coming in and bringing their own music. Jewish music, jazz music. Glitzman. Yeah, yeah, all that. Whereas the British musical, if you, even if you think Novello and Noel Coward, it was imitative of operetta, but making operetta slightly more accessible. Well, Gilbert and Sullivan. It's and Gilbert and Sullivan, yeah. yeah. So if it's, it was a logical sort of progression from Gilbert and Sullivan to Novello and to Coward. Um, what the, the other thing that was a big influence on the on the development of a British musical was socialist theatre practice. Now, socialist theatre practice heavily involved music, and it sort of evolved mainly in the thirties, and it drew heavily on European styles. So it was very heavily influenced by Russian theatre and Eastern Eastern European theatre practice, and it was it was political theatre. It was often performed outside to striking workers or doll cues or bread lines. And it was about, it was, it was designed to politicise the masses quickly. Yeah. So this theatre often lasted only 15 minutes. So songs were very, very important because if it was outside, very often they couldn't hear the spoken word, but they could hear music. 
I suppose that's what um, a, a Bertolt Brecht was doing as well. Absolutely. With, with his plays, Absolutely. there was always a, a song or two yeah. uh, within. So that became the play with music. And the play with music was very, did come out of this socialist theatre practice. And the UK, as, a, as, as so heavily influenced by Europe, this play with music was very, it was very popular in the 60s. It was John, that's where John Littlewood came from, was this socialist theatre practice. Um, and to a degree, Willie Russell. And it was popular in certain areas. So it was, it was the heavily industrial areas, which would be the north of England and Scotland. Scotland was very big with this socialist theatre practice and still is. Um, and I would say that that's where Blood Brothers has evolved from. Blood Brothers, you can see where that socialist practice has come from, where they broke the fourth wall, they talked to the audience. It's very Brechtian. Yeah. Um, to a degree, I mean, I would say the play with music now, the best example would be War Horse, except it wasn't quite so political but it was a, a way that music was integral but it wasn't an integrated musical if that makes sense yeah and then there are people who still say that blood brothers is not really a musical blood brothers a musical for people who don't like musical theater and it's musical music from from the period it's not, yes. not written for i mean uh, warhorse that that score wasn't written just for the show was it they were all no it existed there were four yeah, songs exactly and, and nicholas nickleby also used nicholas music. nickleby yeah and also you go back to um the entertainer john osborne and wesker used a lot of music um sheila delaney taste of honey i mean that was that had a jazz band on stage and there was a great tradition particularly in the late 50s and 60s of protest music coming out of the folk music and the folk scene is very big in the north of England so that that's certainly where war horses come from the use of that those old folk songs to become and and well to augment the, the, the text so Ivan Novello um, not coward of course coward. Uh, um, John Gay um, mm -hmm. uh, with the Vegas Opera um, and uh, is it Noel Gay with me and my girl bit later, yeah, but they... But so, they're all frivolous, sort of frothy. Yes, so yeah. there was these two things going on, which was the sort of escapist musical, which was what Coward was doing, and, and Novello, um, which was more middle class. That was in a theatre. You'd have to buy a ticket, you'd have to dress up. It was a very middle class pastime, whereas the socialist theatre practice was a bit like the Royal Court, but before the Royal Court in the 60s. It was theatre that was for the people, and was designed to motivate them politically into questioning the way their lives were structured. The theatre is a, a way that um, a nation's culture is expressed, of mm. course, um, through what we see on the stage, that, that the reflection of our, ourselves. How, how do you define culture um, in, in regard to, you know, your, your book is about a national identity expressed through the theatre of the UK? Well, I suppose I think that theatre it holds a mirror up to the nation, or it should do. But I suppose all the arts do that. I mean, novels would do that, films would do that. Um, and it's whether or not that mirror is challenging what it's seeing, or if it's reinforcing it. And I'm trying to think, like the angry young men playwrights, and then the, the, the group of playwrights in the 80s and the 90s who were really sort of holding up Thatcher's Britain for what it was and, and questioning it. Um, that's what drama does. 
Uh, now, there is an academic called Ian Bradley who maintains that that's what the musical should do, and that he's, he maintains that that's what the musical does in the USA, which was why I was interested into what the British musical says about Britain. What, is, what does it say about the culture? What does it say about society at the time? Mm. Um, and that's what I was exploring in that book, was can you read, uh, can you read, not messages, but, but c could you discern from watching, from watching musical theatre, if you, if you went to the UK and watched a whole pile of their shows now, what would you learn about the country? Mm. I think you'd learn something very different if you watched American musicals. Well, Britain is a is a, a society that is very classist. Uh, yes, separated by class. Yes, it's I would say that, that that class class is to the British musical what race is to the American musical. Right. It absolutely informs everything in a way that it doesn't in class doesn't in America, and and here, but it still does in the UK. Which was what we were talking about earlier. That that you've got the socialist theatre practice, which is absolutely for the workers designed to get them to revolt and then you've got Noel Coward and Ivor Novella with their nice operettas talking about the aristocracy and beautiful costumes and lavish sets you know they were the complete antithesis of each other mm. so what are the first musicals which are starting to um, appear in in the UK which which I, I, I take a notice of you the first one the, the the first yeah, I'm thinking of Oliver in the 60s. And I would go bef slightly before Oliver when you're... Brickus and Newley, is he the same? They're all the same, they're the 60s. The 60s, yeah. the 1960s in the British musical was a really, really interesting period. And I wanted to do that in the book, but then I realised that actually if we went through the 60s, that's a book in itself. Mm. Because what, what the British musicals did in the 60s was they actually followed the pattern that was happening in drama where they questioned everything. They questioned how theatre was created, who it was created for, and what it was saying on stage. So the 60s was when um, working class theatre actually was on mainstream stage. So, you know, the Royal Court, they were talking about this is the first time that genuine Cockney accents had been heard on stage. So it was challenging who theatre was for and saying that working class audiences had a right to see this as well and musical theatre actually did the same thing and, and in those in the 60s inclusion and diversity were buzzwords but it was about class yeah. it was about why is this not accessible not just financially but not accessible at all to working class people what would they have got from going to see Noel Coward not much um, but then you had John Littlewood and John Littlewood Oh, what a lovely war. 63, mm. I Rampin, think. yeah. Yep. Um, who, incidentally, she was the first woman to be nominated for a Tony as Best Director of a Musical. There you go. For Oh, What a Lovely War. For Oh, What a Lovely War. But she did, a, she did um, Things Ain't What They Used To Be. Now, that's the late 50s, yeah. which was Lionel Bart's first show. And that was the first time they, they actually created a show for the community that they were in. I mean, now we call it community theatre. But they reflected this community that was a working class, Jewish, very, very poor community in the East End. And people had never seen this before. And people were driving up from London in their Rolls Royces and they were all parked outside and Princess Margaret was going to see it because it was so sort of, what's the word? I, I'm... It, it was the trend of the day. It was a, a popular... Well, it was. It was... Entertainment. They all, everyone had to see it. 
yeah, nothing like that had ever been seen before. That, and there was a possibly an element of, and that, that, that became very divisive within theatre workshop. That there was an element of, are we fetishizing the working classes because we're not actually, we're not, we're, we've now begun to play. Once they moved into the West End, you're going well. You've sort of defeated the purpose. The purpose was to perform to the people who you are representing on stage. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that they started that. Um, and in the 60s, it, it very much, the musical was as politicised in Britain as the plays were. It was challenging everything about theatre. Uh, very much influenced from European theatre. By the time we get to the 80s, which is where I start, I start with Blood Brothers. Um, Lloyd Webber has appeared on the scene and things have shifted and I, I wanted to start with Blood Brothers because it seemed to me that here was this wonderful show that had come out of socialist theatre practices at the same time as Lloyd Webber was beginning so it could have gone either way you have these two major influences and we went one way and not the other yeah. uh, Before we get to the 80s so just more um, you talk about Brickus and Newley. Brickus and Newley, sorry, um, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, and um, The Royal the Grease Paint, The Smell mm. of the Crowd, which are, they're really experimenting with form. I mean, the, the subject matter was really quite, um, uh, what's the word, eccentric, it was a little surreal, it was, um, you know, I saw um, Royal of the Grease Paint recently, and I was surprised at how much it was, it felt like a board game or something. It was really and then um, stop the world I want to get off it's just that the story of little chap and yeah, it's, it's no, I'm not sure. I'm a not Greek chorus of, mm. of, of young women but it's very Brechtian mm. again yes, it's those much. influences yeah. it's 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 European influences and it's also about how can we make theatre that's more accessible and this is the 60s that's not we're going to see an Ivor Novello operetta it, that, that, that's something that relates also to a youth culture mm. and Joan Littlewood and that working class socialist theatre was far more appealing to a youth culture than Noel Coward or Novella. They, that was, you know, you took your nana to see that, but that's, that was not appealing to them in the way that they were. And Brickus and Newley, I mean, I would argue if it wasn't for Stop the World I Want to Get Off, we wouldn't have Pippin, we wouldn't have Godspell, because it's, it, it was a concept musical before the term had been invented. I'm not sure you could do it now, and interesting, those those two writers, you know, after those two shows, went off and did a lot of film. A lot of film. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, I mean, he, he wrote Bond themes. Yeah. And he... But I talk about him in the book because there was a sort of... Uh, I have a chapter on nostalgia in the British musical, and there was... Um, Brickus wrote the music for a film called Scrooge, which is a musical adaptation of Christmas Carol, as a film first and then it came to stage in the 90s with Anthony Newley and it was sort of this whole nostalgia for Dickens which was very a huge part of British heritage uh, but also for Newley because he'd been this huge pop star and he was coming back in his late 60s early 70s I think yeah we talk about Charles Dickens of course we, we can't go without talking about Oliver yeah well, and Lionel Bart's uh... and Lionel Bart and the interesting thing about Lionel Bart when I was mentioning earlier about um, inclusion and diversity which are big buzzwords now I mean Lionel Bart was doing that in the 60s where his his Jewish characters and, and, and he reclaimed Fagin because in the book Fagin is very very 
I wouldn't say, well, is it anti-Semitic? Yes, it probably is anti-Semitic. And he reclaimed it in a way and made Fagin somebody that, we, that we, we want Fagin to succeed. Whereas in the book, he's not a very pleasant character. But those, the Jewish influences are absolutely palpable throughout all of our, and musical. Mm. So musical- Yes, would that be Umpapa? Umpapa, yeah, okay. yeah. And musical was another huge influence on the British musical where you had the, you had Coward Novello you had what they call the, the kind of umpapa musicals, the Rumpty Tum musicals, which, you know, Trelawney of the world, really obscure ones now, but half a sixpence is that kind of musical influence, me and my girl. Um, and Bart was very clever in doing both. He had musical and a Jewish influence as well. Um, but in terms of form, Oliver was, was imitating an American Broadway form mm. of show mm. in a way that Brickers and Newley weren't mm. and certainly Oh What a Lovely War wasn't. Well all those shows Oh What a Lovely War, uh, the Brickers and Newley, Oliver, they all went to the States, they all played Broadway. Mm -hmm. They all played Broadway and they how, were all nominated how, for Tony's. So they were received quite well as yes. an English offering? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Oliver was nominated for Best Show but didn't win. Evita was the first British musical to win. Mm. Um, Newly was nominated, um, so yeah. I mean, they were they were aware of them. Yeah. And there was also you've got to remember there was Julian Slade. There was you know Salad Days and this sort the the, the musical frippery I call it. Yes, and the boyfriend. And the boyfriend, yeah, course, Sandy which, Wilson's boyfriend. Uh, Julie Andrews mm. launched Julie Andrews' career. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they were the antithesis of those socialists. Musicals, they were just like very often class based, the, the you know, the antics of the upper classes, which were there for amusement, not there to be challenged. <laughs> uh, and there are lots of um, authors, of course, who are ripe for the picking uh, Shakespeare, J.M. Barry, Chaucer, P.G. Wodehouse, uh, Roald Dahl, Dickens, mm. Kipling. Um, well, it's all what of I those call stories redacted. Yeah, it's what I call um, in the UK, I call it the literary gaze that the UK is very, very proud of its literary heritage. And that's sort of, I think the UK has traditionally, there's been this tradition of intellectualism that was not American. So that was part of the snobbery towards the American musical was, yes, but it's not real theatre. And a lot of, I still think that that carries on, but it was to do with this heritage of, of great, writers and playwrights and novelists um, who, and, and as you say, I mean, the British novelists that have had their work turned into British musicals, it's all, all the greats. But Dickens is one that co they come back to time and time again. And Roald Dahl now, I mean, there's a whole company yeah. dedicated to bringing his, musicalising his work. Yeah. The English musical is really um, brought to the fore by the meeting of, of two gentlemen, Tim Rice mm. and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who really... Uh, to make make the form its own, mm. the English musical mm. with with Jesus Christ Superstar. Well, first of all, there was um, Joseph. Joseph, who's taken like a dream coat, and then Jesus Christ Superstar, which had productions around the world, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course the Beatles. Which... And they were it was, I mean, they were very young when they did Jesus Christ Superstar. And what was interesting about it was that they were seen to be really subversive. And when you consider how Andrew Lloyd Webber is regarded now, that he was then considered to be this very subversive young man who was not just turning musical theatre on its head by introducing 
sort of these rock themes, but also in, in the subject matter, was being ter- you know, was being really controversial. Um, there's a great YouTube clip, I think you can still watch it, where Tim Rice is challenged by the bishop of somewhere, I think it's Durham, on the BBC chat show. And this bishop keeps saying, this is blasphemous. And Tim Rice just keeps saying, have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? And finally, the bishop says, I haven't seen it. And Tim Rice gets up and walks out. He says, well, why am I debating with you? Yeah. It's all live television. Right. But it's late 70s. I mean, they were seen as these sort of embodiment of the youth culture, which was the end of flower power and the hippies and, and this whole demand by youth that post-war Britain needed to change. Because uh, in America we'd had Godspell and Hair, mm-hmm. uh, those and sorts of they shows. Were that, I mean, I think Jesus Christ Superstar was taken up by the same, the same demographic, right. which th- thought that they were hearing revolution in those lyrics and in, in, in and the, the whole in- form. instrumentation also. Absolutely. It was, it was rock the, musical. The rock idiom, yeah. And, it, and it, it was youth culture. It was the first real British musical to appeal to a youth audience. And it, the other thing that's interesting about that was it came out on LP before it was anywhere near mm. the theatre. So by the time it got to the theatre, they had created this demand, which was very unusual then, that there was this huge demand for a British musical because they all knew the album. Yeah. So they were going along and singing along. But, but, but a British musical, which not necessarily has... Um, uh, British-flavoured uh, focuses, like, like, like Jesus no. Christ, or indeed Ava Peron. No. Well, the interesting thing about Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I have a whole chapter in the book on Andrew Lloyd Webber, is that what's most interesting about him is his refusal to engage with any kind of British identity. So if you think about his shows, they're all very lavish and they're huge, but they're not British. The only thing that's British about them is him. Right. So they're not British stories, apart from the football one. Beautiful game. Beautiful game. And, and of the opera, of course, which is uh, yeah. from a French uh, French novel. Um, and Stephen Ward, but I mean that was fairly disastrous. But by and large, his shows do not engage in any way with cultural identity or national identity. His Everyone, requ- everyone's got a cat in, <laughs> in, the, in the UK. Um, his requiem does. Yeah. His requiem is more is more interesting because the requiem draws on a, a tradition like folk music that was an ecclesiastical tradition that were, were singing took place in the church and there was a real, a distinct English ecclesiastical sound, apparently. Mm. I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it, but... He's he's become, um, well, he's Lord Lloyd Webber now um, and has really been... Would you say he was the saviour of the musical? Or, no, I he mean, thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, he, he, I mean... Along with uh, Sir Cameron Mackintosh, they own quite a number of theatres in the West End, and um, they were the two that were really um, heckling the government to to open theatres again um, post pandemic. He was more so than Cameron, but but I mean it was it was purely selfish motives. It wasn't we we're concerned about the rep companies up in Sheffield. It was I want to open Cinderella. Why am I not being allowed to open Cinderella? And the great British public needs to be able to see Phantom of the Opera. It was purely selfish. He did speak out in a way that nobody else, not not that nobody else did, but Lloyd Webber comes with such clout that, yes, he was able to force questions in Parliament in a way that I don't know that anybody else would have been able to do. Um, But I don't think his wider concern was a great British theatrical tradition. I think it was his shows. 
he wasn't being allowed to premiere Cinderella and he was furious. I mean, at one point he was, he was saying he was going to go to jail and I talk about it in the book, that he was quite prepared to go to jail to open Cinderella. And I thought, really? <laughs> it's a bit drastic. Yes. And I think that Lloyd Webber is interesting because he does, pol- I mean, he polarises that you go, he was the saviour of the British musical, which has now become, he is exactly what is preventing it from moving on. Because he, between, this is purely my opinion, um, between Andrew and Cameron, they do own a lot of the West End. So they're, they can, in essentially, they can control what comes in, the product that comes in, because it's their theatres that it's going into. They're about the, like the Schubert's and the Netherlanders and on Broadway. Yeah. So they can say no. They can mm. say, no, I don't want that show in there. They also now, particularly Cameron, not Andrew, but Cameron is now getting his claws into the rep companies. Um, so the National, uh, maybe not National, but some of the Leeds Playhouse, for example, Martin Gale was there. Um, Chichester, what was the, um, was it once? Half a sixpence? Yeah, recently, the half a sixpence. Um, and Flowers for Mrs. Harris. Completely. And he's also here with Saigon, so at an opera company. So moving into subsidised companies, which I think is concerning. Well, it stops, it, it prevents a growth of new talent because this is what... And I think that Andrew Lloyd Webber has become so synonymous with the British musical that there's a whole generation that thinks that's how you do a musical because they haven't seen anything else because nothing else has been able to grow because these two have so dominated with, a mega, with the mega musical. And there's shows that people obviously want to see decade after decade... Um, it's, uh, I was thinking, but do why? they, or is it learned? Uh, well, it, maybe it's learned behaviour. Is it, yes, it's, that's my, my my thinking. I think you know, um, you look at those golden musicals uh, uh, from America of the fifties or whatever. Um, I suppose have started to have their day now. Even the Rodgers and Hammerstein repertoire. Well, um, they tend to get done by opera companies because people don't sing like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And also, I feel that there's become this. The British musical, what became the mega musical, Cameron and Andrew, in the 80s and 90s, where they commodified the musical, musical theatre and exported it, it became Britain's greatest export. So that... Is that the first time we see those, those franchise productions yeah. where every yeah. production around the world had to look the same? Yeah, it was cats. wasn't necessarily done before that. No, not really. It was Cats. I mean, Vivaldi did it with operas. Yeah. But um, I, I think it was Cats. But it was absolute deliberate commodification and what that reflected to go back to Ian Bradley saying it reflects as, as the, the where society is at at any given point it reflected the greed is good culture and it reflected it was Thatcherism at its base Thatcherism was a Thatcher said that the arts should fund themselves the arts should be a business and Cameron and Andrew turned musical theatre into a massively profitable business which it had never been before and franchised the shows all over the world um, and I think that, that that mega musical that came out of the UK became, became responsible for the British musical being associated with money. It, it, it stopped being about the form and a love of musicals or a desire to push boundaries in musical theatre. It became about how much money can we make from this one product. And I think my thesis that I come up with in the book is that 
the reason the jukebox musical came out of the UK was twofold. One was because we have this uh, great capacity to look back and dwell and say, weren't we fabulous during the war? Um, but also because there was nothing, there was no other way of getting in because Cameron and Andrew had got everything sewn up and they were, they were also, and this is really important, they were the first shows to send out number one tours around the UK. That had never happened. Before then, if you wanted to see a West End musical, you had to go to the West End. So you lived in Edinburgh or so Glasgow no or Sheffield. No regional tours. No, there's no, no regional tours. You, the regional theatres produced their own work, but if you wanted to see Les Mis or Chess or whatever, you had to go to the West End, and not many people did that. But suddenly, theatre became accessible, and so class was challenged because it no longer was this thing that only a certain type of the demographic of the population went to because it became accessible. It became, and it was marketed very cleverly, it was marketed as an event, that if you were a young man taking his girlfriend who wanted to see Phantom of the Opera, it was an event, you got dressed up, he bought chocolates, it was the red plush carpet, it was, and the intimidation that had been people who wouldn't go to theatre because they said it's all a bit intimidating, you know, the grands and the royals and the theatre royal bar, you know, it's all a bit too intimidating. What was on stage was far from intimidating. And it was welcoming to everybody. So that the democratisation of the musical happened then. But it also was heavily, heavily based on commercialism and how much money can we make. Which is perhaps not a bad thing in that it certainly reinvigorated musical theatre, but it means that where we're at now is... We've, the West End is full of shows that are 40 years old. It gave the Americans a, a bit of a scare for a while. When, when you had um, Cats, Les Mis, Phantom, mm. Miss Saigon, all, all the, um, coming into the, the, the Americans. Yeah, completely, and I think that it... I mean, there was a period there where if you look at three main movements in musical... Not main, but major movements in musical theatre. One, the Sung Three musical. Well, that was Andrew Lloyd Webber. The Jukebox musical which was Mamma Mia, and the mega musical, which was Cameron and Andrew. I mean, those, in those decades, those completely shifted the form of the musical, and they all came out of the UK, whereas the musical was an American form. So you're absolutely right. The Americans were very peeved at being beaten at their own game yeah. and then followed suit. So I, I, I think that that's how Disney got in, because Disney saw this, you can franchise, and actually you can commodify something which had never, nobody had ever thought of commodifying music, musical theatre, who would go? Well, now everybody goes. Yeah. And now it's a trendy thing to do. Everybody goes to musicals. And in the UK, musical theatre, one reason I'm interested in, in one of the things I'm, I'm, I follow in the book is because I'm saying, but what are British musicals saying? British musicals haven't really moved on with the times. And that matters because musical theatre tends to be the only experience of theatre most people in the UK will have outside of the panto. So that if you live in Edinburgh or Sheffield or Manchester, uh, you'll go and see Phantom on tour and you'll go and see Aladdin. It's unlikely that that same demographic will hold tickets to the rep company. Mm. Will hold, you know, will, will be subscribers to the rep company. Interesting that Disney joined forces with Sir Cameron with Mary isn't Poppins. It? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and Mary Poppins played a long time in, mm. uh, in New York. But in terms of reflecting the nation it absolutely reflected 
the values of Thatcherism, which was capitalism. And stop looking for handouts. We're not giving you a handout. And that was the subsidised sector, saying oh, you should be able to fund yourself and if you can't, then the model isn't working. Which was why the National and the RSC started doing musicals. And of course, the, the advent of those musicals um, in, in the 80s, uh, a role that you have played out many times is the role of resident director. Mm. And mm. that role didn't exist. Didn't exist. With musical theatre mm. until those shows. And neither did... The production stage manager didn't exist. It was a stage manager, but there wasn't someone who went all over the world and said, no, you do this, you do this, and you have to call it on this beat, and you have to do that. So, All the it, associate directors who went around and, and staged utterly, the, the show. Utterly. Yeah. I mean, it created a whole... a lot of jobs. It created a lot of work for a lot of people, and that should not be ignored. And also, I do think that Phantom, particularly Phantom, got a demographic into the theatre who would never otherwise have gone. And you don't know how many of them said, oh, that was great, I'm going to go again. That suddenly theatre became accessible, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Certainly Mamma Mia did a lot, a lot for that. And Mamma Mia, I think, couldn't have existed if it wasn't for Les and Phantom and Saigon. Talk to me about the, the aesthetic of the, um, the British musical. You know, designers like Sean Kenny, obviously that famous Oliver designer. Oliver. You know, um, and then John Napier, who John was Napier. responsible for so mm. many of the designs of those, those big mega musicals. Well, I, I was trying to find, in, in early on when I was doing research, was, was going, is there a discernible British voice? And I think that a discernible British voice in musical, it was a design aesthetic to begin with. I mean, it was Sean Kenny. Um, and there was a wonderful show, or there's a show called Blitz, which was another um, Lionel Bart, which seems to, uh, uh, there was a review that more or less said it was bigger than the actual thing. And that was Sean Kenny. <laughs> that, was, that was a Kenneth Tynan. It was a three-tiered series, Yeah, it was a Kenneth Tynan review saying, you know, if you live through this, you know, you'll be lucky because it, it's bigger than the Blitz itself. And this set was huge. And it, so even when people came out of a Lloyd Webber show or, an Andrew, or, or Cameron saying, well, you whistle the scenery. I mean, they were saying that in the 60s at Sean Kenny. They were saying, well, it, it's, it's all about the set. And then that was coming back and saying that about Phantom. Well, it's just all about the set. And they were, or the helicopter, it's all about the set. And I think that was, I think that was a particularly British thing. And there were pivotal moments in those mm. shows too. Everybody went, they wanted to wait, they mm. waited for the chandelier mm. to drop, yeah. they waited for the helicopter to arrive. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the, I, um, yeah. In Les Mis, the, the, barricade the barricade to sort of form. Yeah. I mean, I can remember on Broadway um, when Saigon was in previews. And you remember in, what's the song in Act Two? It's when they go to Bangkok. And when Bangkok flew in, which is all neon, and people stood up and applauded. John Napier would go and take a bow. He would, he would, he would go in the back of the stall and take a bow. Say thank you. Um, but they applauded because it hadn't been seen before. And it, it also, it wasn't superfluous to the story. It was helping the story. It was supporting the story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the barricades absolutely support the narrative. Uh, you talk about the Blitz, a line of Bart musical. I, I loved um, his Robin Hood musical, Twang. Oh, Twang. <laughs> that was when he and John Littlewood fell out and never spoke again because yeah. it had been such a disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you're quite right uh, about Lloyd Webber. Uh, so few of his musicals actually mm. have a, a Anything to do with uh, it. content. Um, Sunset Boulevard, based on mm -hmm. uh, an American film. Mm -hmm. 
um, I mean, there's, there's, there's beautiful game, and I, I do give the beautiful game a bit of a swerve in my book because um, here you have two Englishmen writing a musical about the Troubles, and anyone who knows anything about the Troubles would know that the English were considered the cause of the Troubles. So here you have these two Englishmen who quite publicly, well, Ben Elton quite publicly said, I don't think I need to go to Belfast to understand Belfast. You go, oof. There's cultural appropriation at its best. Yeah. And it was a story about a football team, um, Catholic and Protestant football team. But it, uh, it, I did feel like that maybe was Andrew's attempt at social realism, but that's such, a, such an explosive subject to go near in music, particularly in a musical. Mm. Mm. Um, it didn't work. And then he did Stephen Ward, which... Uh, I don't know how big it is in Australian culture, how well known that whole perfumo affair is, but I think we're all a bit tired of it now. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't do well. Starlight Express, that's a show that I only went to see because of the set. <laughs> there you go, yeah. John Navier. Yeah, yeah. And I saw it. It's extraordinary too that, that an English musical, a uh, British musical. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I, I sound corrected. Um, has had such longevity and success in a German town, Bochum. I know. Which has a purpose built theatre just for Starlight Express. And it's been running 30 plus years. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. It was there when I was there in the 90s. Um, but it's visual. And I think it's learned behaviour. I think it's that thing of you have to go and see this. This is what you do when you come here. Yeah. You go and you see this. Um, yeah, it is bizarre. Do you know, I've never seen it. Oh, you must, in Bokum. Oh, no, I couldn't bear it. Nowhere else, in Bokum. <laughs> you must see it in Bokum. <laughs> I don't think I could bear it. Uh, Sunset, Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard also, that, that wonderful... Uh, the house. The, the house that, that comes down on top mm. of, of the mm. set. That's I mean, that, incredible again, it, but it was a, another, you know, people said, oh, it's all about the set. And he's like, well, it isn't, but the set does support the story. Would it be successful without that set I don't know because you have to understand Norma's isolation in that huge barn of a place it's like um, the film Citizen Kane you know you have to understand how the the role the house plays in her isolation and it's a show that could quite easily be a chamber musical oh just, completely just for four there's, only, there's only four people in it really yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but neither Andrew or Cameron show any sign of relinquishing their grip and I think it, I think it has stopped new voices coming through, and also I think it's stopped new forms being able to emerge, because this is we've sort of become this is how we do the musical, and I think I talk about it in the book as well. I think you t- them when Cameron at towards the end of the pandemic, and Cameron went on. So you think you've got talent, was it? Oh, yes. Was it yes. a show like that? Yeah, yeah, on the closing one. And they performed, there was this performance of the British musical, but it was only his shows. And that sort of says to me that, that the British musical is so intrinsically entwined with Cameron and Andrew. It's Les Mis, it's, you know, there wasn't, on the, it was Phantom, Les Mis and Mary Poppins. There wasn't, everyone's talking about Jamie, there wasn't Matilda, there wasn't Hamilton. It was... The British musical is Cameron and Andrew, and I think that, I think that actually is so is quite set in stone, and that 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 needs to be dislodged before the British musical can can do a Hamilton, for example, mm. can make those strides. 
that understanding needs to be challenged and it's not being challenged. You've got shows like Six yeah. that are breaking through. Well, PD, I would say that Six isn't a musical. Right. It's a, it's a concert. A concert, right? a concert. And I, but Six, to me, Six is a success because it is performing a function and that function is to say, look, we are inclusive and we're diverse. Yeah. Well, it's not at all. I mean, if you look at the original creative team, there are more men on that creative team than women. Yeah. And it is a discernible male voice throughout that. And hypersexualized women, to me, there's not a lot feminist about that show, but it's ticking a box, which is a very useful box to tick, to say, look, we can produce shows just as good as Hamilton. Yeah. Whereas I, I think that's questionable, but <laughs> I know I'm in the wrong because they stand up and cheer. And writing partnerships like Stars and Drew, but I guess they're sponsored by Sir Cameron, and, yeah. and they're writing a lot of show, a lot of product for uh, for him to produce. Well, Cameron picked them up after they wrote a show called Honk, which in a field that included Mamma Mia and can't remember the other big one, they won the Olivier Award for Best New Musical, which no one had ever heard of. It was on at the National, and Cameron picked them up, um, and I, I guess sponsored them but but then they wrote Mary Poppins and Betty Blue Eyes that big hit which I, I love the score <laughs> based yeah. on it was a show about an animatronic <laughs> yeah. but that's King Kong I suppose um, Jerry Springer the opera grew out of um, that was it was at the national or was it an English musical it was it was a, a I don't remember things. I think it I think it was the national and and the the I'm trying to remember the name of that the musical about the the serial killer is it about a serial killer no no you're thinking of um I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this are you out. not thinking no hang on london road london road yeah london road now that came out of the national yeah so but this, that, that's a show that experimented with form and yeah and this is what i think is the great pity i think that when you see is it about a serial killer mm -hmm. yeah it yeah. is right. you're right yeah. and prostitutes yes not sweeney todd <laughs> no. right. it's a cheery night in theater um but London Road came out of the National. And London Road, which I thought was fantastic, just for the experiment with form and taking verbatim theatre and musicalising it. Um, to me, the, the, the tragedy of London Road was that it showed what we could be doing. Um, if a bit of money and a bit of time and effort went into looking at the musical as a form in a different way. And it was so quintessentially English. I mean, it couldn't have been anything else just those patterns of speech and, and the way that the people were talking, it, it was, it would have been a hard sell in America. It would be a hard sell here. I mean, and, but because it's, it challenged the forum in such a way, I thought that it was exactly what the National Theatre should be doing in terms of musical theatre. It should be challenging the forum and saying, well, we have all this talent, how do we do it? And my argument, one of the things I say in the book in reflecting the nation is that the British musical remains absolutely white and male. There hasn't been anything, there's been, there is not, there's not a diverse voice at all. Now that is not being challenged. The British musical is reflecting that, whereas society is not reflecting that. And drama is not reflecting that. You know, there's a very distinct and a proud history of a black voice in, in British drama um, and a women's voice. But you're not seeing either of that in the musicals. So that I, I, why is that, and and does that reflect the nation? Well, it seems to in musical theatre. I mean, if you look at so, but everybody's talking about Jamie, the boy in the dress, 
and the Styles and Drew one being Nancy. Yep. Three shows mm. in the space of two years, I think, about boys wearing dresses to school. You go, what's that saying about the British nation? It's saying that girls' stories are not important. It's saying that boys' na- narratives about boys and young men are more important and more valid. And that's what an audience wants to see. But the audience is women. I mean, one of those shows would be fine. We don't need three. We get it. And, and that's there, isn't, there, there isn't an alternative. We're not seeing the girl dressing as a boy going to school. Hmm. It, it's a very blinkered viewpoint. Shows like Matilda? Well, Matilda... I argue that Matilda completely undermines the empowerment message because it puts Miss Trunchbull as played by a man. Now, in the book, in the original, in the original drawings... Miss Trunchbull's not a man, it's a woman. And in the film, I thought it was very interesting that the film clearly, whoever it was, Sony or Warner Brothers, whoever it was, clearly were much more aware of the implications of removing that, of, of putting a man in that role and not a woman. Because Emma Thompson plays it in the film. Well, it's a different medium. It's up, up close, isn't it? Personal. Could, you could yeah, argue, I just though. Think, I think in film there would be much more of a backlash of why isn't it being played by a woman. But the casting of a fellow harks back to that, that pantomime tradition of, of the dame, doesn't it? It is, but I think that's a very convenient excuse. It's like <laughs> saying the black and white minstrel show yeah. is family entertainment. Yeah. You go, well, okay, it is, but it's still offensive. Yeah. And I think that there are huge ethical implications that no one ever brought up about removing, uh, taking away a role from a woman. There are so few good roles for women in musical theatre mm. and having a man play it. Mm. And it sort of undermines Matilda because we're saying, well, what are we saying? We're saying that a man in a dress is funny. Well, why is that? Because women are funny. So what's that saying to Matilda? If you follow that logic, yeah. if you follow that progression. So the future... Um we're going to get Downton Abbey the musical something oh, like that? <laughs> I think we will you I would put money on that because it's been such a popular franchise such a po- and it's class yeah. that's what we want to see um, there's a when I was looking at nostalgia in the British musical there was the, the, the classic British quintessential British musical sort of came out it, it was Goodbye Mr Chips now I mean you couldn't get more quintessentially English than Goodbye Mr Chips I don't think that that would cause an outcry if you put that on stage now. I think that's how little the British musical has progressed. I think you could do a show about white, upper-class boys in a nice private school and no one would take issue with it, with its all-male creative team. I really do. I think they'd go, oh, wasn't that marvellous? I mean, there, has been, there have been good things. If you think about... I mean, Billy Elliot was wonderful. The Last Ship is interesting. Um, that's in terms of class the last chip was I mean it didn't do well in America but written by Sting by Sting and it's never been seen in London but it was huge and hugely popular in the north of England because again it was putting us on stage you could recognise us on stage and that's what Blood Brothers did Blood Brothers took that community and put them on stage are young creators being nurtured? I mean, in America, it's full of schools and, and, and institutions that, that are training writers and composers. And Does that happen in Britain? Not in musicals. It does in drama. I mean, I'm trying to think. I don't think there is a university course, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there is uh, for writers or composers. Um, 
there's an organisation called Mercury Musical Development. But it's sort of assuming the work is done. I don't think new musicals... There's been a sort of half-hearted attempts at the National, but where, where, where it was, um, was in Theatre Workshop, John Littlewood, but 20 years later, where they actually had a musical theatre programme. And what came out of there was a distinct black or Asian voice which possibly didn't make it to the West End. Two shows did. Actually, more. Um, five Guys Named Mo came out of there and came out of that initiative. Oh, that was a British musical, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That came out of Stratford East. Right. Um, but, no, I mean, you'd, uh, you, you could ask, why is the RSC commissioning Robbie Williams to write music for The Boy in the Dress when actually there are great... There's a great history of... Asian music and black music. I mean, Bend It Like Beckham mm. uh, was a wonderful example of what could be achieved with, with a bit of fusion and a bit of, bit of thought gone into how do we take a form that is not this culture, but how do we make it uh, appropriate for this culture and how do we do it in a way that everybody wants to come and see it, but that does not appropriate the culture. Yeah. And that was a great show. Mm. And about young women succeeding. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And football. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Grace Barnes, thank you. It's always a, a, a delight to, always um, a delight, to discuss our, our, our favourite topic, the musical theatre. The musicals. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and your new book, National Identity and the British Musical from Blood Brothers to Cinderella. Oh, we didn't talk about that. Oh, we should. Yes. Oh, yeah, right. we should very briefly. <laughs> All right. And then we can sign off again. Uh, what about that? And then to to change the name to Bad Cinderella. I mean, you're asking for trouble, aren't you? Oh, you are. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, you read those reviews where they say it is. <laughs> it does what the title says it does. It's bad. Um, I think, and I, I, I say this in my chapter on Lloyd Webber, that I, I, to me, I think Lloyd Webber lost sight of what he was doing a long time ago um, in terms of creating... I mean, this, this is the man who created Evita and who created Jesus Christ Superstar, now doing Bad Cinderella. I think he's so concerned with what will make money, what will hit the mark, what will get people into the theatre. And it was... He, he does tend to pander to the moment. So there's a lot of wokeness in Cinderella, which I'm... And he jumped on the tailcoats a bit of... Uh, the, the writer of the piece was... Um, you know, she was Camilla Parker-Bowles in, in The Crown. <laughs> I've forgotten her name. <laughs> Everald um, Fidel. Yes. Also, but she was also a family friend and had never written for the, for, for musicals. And right. that's... I mean, it's that's the other... It's writing a screenplay. It's very that. different to writing a screenplay. Um, and it felt like a bit like Six, that it was absolutely manufactured for a specific purpose which was a young audience that was woke and that would would say oh this is all about inclusion and diversity but in terms of what it said about women I mean that was during lockdown he was he was regularly posting on and, and posting on TikTok and, and he had the musical director who's an Australian who I did West Side with I think um, sitting next to him playing tunes playing show tunes and they had the dog there um, about how this was a subversive musical and how this was a feminist musical. I was watching it going, there's nothing subversive about this. She, you know, the women are all, not all, but it's kind of 
caricatures of bitchy women and women wearing underwear on stage and running around after she just runs around after the boy the whole time so I'm thinking I've missed something where's the subversion oh it's that Prince Charming is gay is that it it's not it's not really subversive in 2023 yeah. um, it felt like it was pandering to a market, and I think that's what he does now. Mm. Um, I mean, Starlight Express was just cashing in on the rollerblading craze, mm. but it's still going. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great thing. You see all of these shows that you write about, so you're, you're well informed. I hope so. Yeah. Um, well, the British musical interests me because I think it's because it's a an American art form. How can you give that a distinctive voice? I suppose it's the same. It's the same discussion that happens here. How do you take something that is not intrinsically Australian and make it intrinsically Australian? Yeah. Where you're, you're using, you're utilising an art form that, that's not a natural fit to the nation. And you're trying to manipulate it, which is what the UK was doing. But the UK managed to do it and go, well, we've got our own stamp on it, but now it doesn't know where it is because it can't get beyond this British invasion. You know, we're still in the 90s. And you're going, but... I think the last good show to come out of the UK probably was Billy Elliot. I'm okay. trying to think. What would you think? A show about class. A show about and class. Thatcher. And Thatcher. Mm. But 20 years after, yeah. it could not possibly have gone on at that time because nobody would have gone because that audience only existed for Billy Elliot because of the mega musical and the democratisation of the musical with those people that... The, people who were in the audience for Billy Elliot who were cheering the minors wouldn't have gone to the theatre 20 years previously yeah. which I think is kind of ironic that's fascinating mm, isn't it fascinating. And, uh, and your book is a terrific read and it's wonderful to uh, to discuss uh, all of that today so um, thank you Petey thank you Dr Barnes pleasure a truly interesting conversation I'm sure you'd agree plenty of food for thought and a fascinating account of the British musical Grace Barnes' book, National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella, is published by Methuen Drama. Thanks for joining us in this episode, and thank you, Dr Barnes. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. <laughs>